This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Well, hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone listening in to this newest podcast of VORW Radio International, the voice of the Report of the Week. Thank you all so much for tuning in. New podcast finally here. First and foremost, let's get to a few important notes. If you're tuning into this program via YouTube right now, please direct your attention to the screen. There are three pieces of fan art that I would like to introduce and give credit where credit is due. The first piece of fan art goes out to Grey Sky Man and says, I was inspired to draw you from your Lofthouse Cookies review. The second piece of fan art, credit to Sarah, sarahbraunart.privado.com, that's S-A-R-A-B-R-A-U-N-A-R-T dot C-R-E-V-A-D-O dot com. The URL to that is in the description. And the third and final piece, credited to DC, says, Please find a quick edit of one of your pictures in the style of Exorcist Believer attached to this email. I know it's not the Sistine Chapel of graphic design, but the Believer was way too easy to change to the viewer, so I hope you enjoy the edit. Huge thank you to everyone out there who sent in fan art. It's been a long-running tradition to feature fan art in this program. If you are feeling artistically inclined and you would like to create a piece of fan art to be featured in the next program, here's how to do it. It's quite easy. First and foremost, have fun with it. Go to town, any style, anything. That's what it's all about. Have fun with it. Uh, Let your creativity flow. Once you've made a piece of fan art that you would like to be featured, or that you would like featured in the next program, all you have to do is send it to me. You just have to send it as an attachment via email. Send an email to V-O-R-W-I-N-F at gmail.com and let me know how you would like to be credited. If you would like to be anonymous, just let me know. If you do not let me know how you would like to be credited, I will make you anonymous by default. Uh, But otherwise, I could credit you by name, I could credit you by full name, an online username you use, uh, if you would like. I could link a social media profile or a website of yours if you'd like to promote it, some more folks can find more of your work, etc. But at the very least, you know, you took the time to make this piece of fan art, so this is the least that I can do. So it's really up to you, uh, but just to let me know. And then, of course, I'll feature your piece of fan art in the next program, and I will mention how you're credited both verbally, as I just did with the folks whose art was featured in this program, and also it will be there in writing 
in the description. So if there are any URLs, etc., someone can just find the link right there and click it, and, and that's all that there is to it. And likewise, I should note, if you enjoy this program, you want to hear more of it, if you enjoy the radio show that I do in conjunction to this podcast, which I do far more frequently than it, I do two radio shows a week. That's two hours of content. There's a lot that I talk about. I'll even play some music too, but I put a lot of effort into it. It goes out on the radio, of course. That's why it's a radio show. But it also is streamed online. It's something I really enjoy doing. It's a lot of fun. Very well received by many listeners all over the world. But it is something that involves a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of resources too, both material, time as well, the time that it takes to put the show together, and financial in order to produce the show and get it distributed as I get it distributed. As a result, the costs do add up from one month to the next. If you enjoy the show, you want to help keep it going, you could support it via Patreon. I have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash the report of the week. If you support the program on Patreon, you can access a massive archive of the radio shows that I do. You could listen on demand to, at this point, probably thousands of hours of additional content. Uh, There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows, years worth at this point, all archived there, and you could listen again digitally, high-quality audio, anytime you want. That's just the least I could do, of course, because via the Patreon, you're supporting the program. This is at least the very least I can do to give back in that regard. Just a huge amount of content that you can access uh, by supporting it via the Patreon page. Uh, If you'd prefer, you could also donate via PayPal, to V O R W I N F O at gmail.com. And you know, one thing that your funding has helped with, some exciting news, I think it's exciting anyway. I don't I don't know how exciting some folks would find it, but I think it's an exciting announcement. I have an expansion that I want to get the word out about for the radio show. I am introducing a new high-power shortwave broadcast. Now, for those of you who have been with the broadcast for a while, you might remember a year ago, I had a broadcast for most of 2022, I'd say it was, that was transmitted from a station in Austria, and it was for listeners in Europe, listeners over in Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe especially, and uh, the signal also made it into parts of Asia. And I had to discontinue that broadcast as there were some issues with the transmission provider and uh, some payment issues as well that I just didn't feel comfortable with. So as a result, I just had to put the brakes on that. It was sort of a a situation that there wasn't any solution to it. 
So it just had to, you know, it was what it was. And uh, since that point, it was very difficult to find another transmission provider, especially at a reasonable cost. I have good news. There was an opening that emerged at a high-power shortwave station in France. The opportunity again presented itself, so I took it. Now, it should be noted that this station in France is a very high-power facility. They have transmitters available that could broadcast at 100 kilowatts. They could broadcast at 250 kilowatts. They could even broadcast at 500 kilowatts. That's 500,000 watts of power. So it's an extremely high power, a very professional facility. It's used extensively by broadcasters such as Radio France International, NHK World, Radio Japan, It's used by KBS World Radio from South Korea. It's used by Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster, as well as many other stations. And particularly this facility, it's located in Isodun, France. It particularly is effective at targeting the African continent. And they have these amazing antennas that can actually rotate. And you can pretty much mention, okay, I want to target this country. And they could beam it at a certain angle, and they could do exactly that. So, being that this station, again, it can reach any part of the world, but it is most adept at targeting the African continent... That's why it's so heavily utilized. Yeah, I saw the opportunity, and of course I took it. So, I have a broadcast targeting Africa, but it will also be heard across Europe. I've already done a few test transmissions, and the results are extremely encouraging, I am pleased to say. So the broadcast right now is transmitted at 100 kilowatts of power. If the funding comes through, I would be willing to increase the power to 250 kilowatts. It's doable. I could even increase it to 500 kilowatts. But obviously I just want to be smart with the finances because I'm already happy with the results. And I don't want to burn my money. I want to make sure it's used effectively. So right now I'm broadcasting with 100 kilowatts, but again, if there's an opportunity that the power can be increased wisely, I should say, uh, then I will do it. You know, it just has to be the right decision to make. But anyway, so if you look at a world map and you open up the African continent, essentially where the broadcast is going to be beamed is pretty much looking at France in perspective to uh, the African continent. Essentially, in a straight line, it's beamed directly to the south-southeast. The signal is largely beamed 
toward the country of Chad in Africa. So essentially, the signal will take off from Isodun, France, and it'll kind of bounce over most of southern and central France. And then the signal will sort of touch down, starting in North Africa, uh, particularly in Algeria, Tunisia, Libya. And then the signal will continually get stronger as you begin moving to the southeast. So as you get into Niger, Chad, Sudan, Central African Republic, South Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, the signal will probably be at its strongest. Uh, but then it should continue with good signal strength uh, into Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Botswana, South Africa. That is where the signal is going to be primarily beamed, essentially right down the center of the African continent, in order to, I feel, effectively reach uh, the largest number of countries uh, that one realistically could. Uh, but likewise, the signal should still be heard across much of Europe, particularly most areas outside of France. And likewise, the signal should continue, because it'll kind of split off at the sides a little bit. It should also be heard throughout the Middle East, Asia, the Pacific, and even across North and possibly South America, now, in North and South America, uh, particularly the East Coast of both. Now, I have done two broadcasts already with this exact setup as a test, and I'm happy with the results. Uh, so far, now granted, you know, the internet access across the African continent is going to be iffy at best. And a lot of the folks that are still out there actually listening to shortwave, I'm never going to hear from them. I'm never even going to know they're ever listening. But I was able to get reports immediately from listeners all across South Africa. And they are all reporting very good reception. So that's very encouraging, that if the signal is that strong in South Africa... More likely than not, it is that strong or stronger across the rest of the African continent. Uh, likewise, I've gotten reports from listeners in Egypt, Morocco, uh, listeners in Malta as well listened in. So those areas further to the north, they're also getting a signal. Uh, there were some listeners in France that were able to tune in. Spain, Portugal, Germany, Russia, Finland... The UK all got reports from them. And then far outside the target area, uh, I got some reports from listeners in the United States. Uh, there were some folks, especially in the Northeast, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, as well as in parts of Connecticut. Uh, they were able to listen in. I've also received reception reports from listeners in India who got the signal. A bunch of listeners in Japan actually stayed up late and were able to report reception there. And I also got some feedback from listeners in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so this signal, particularly the sophisticated setup that's used here, the antenna 
used for this. I was mentioning the rotatable antenna is really the best that money can buy. And I think the results prove that. It's at a frequency and time that essentially is able to make the signal heard in pretty much every continent. It's just fully taking advantage of the current solar conditions in order to get the absolute most of it. And uh, I am blown away by the results. So I think folks, especially in Africa, will be able to get a signal. And uh, at the very least, I hope I could provide some listeners there with, you know, something to listen to, some music, and uh, perhaps some news commentary for those that, of course, can speak English and could, you know, can listen in. I hope it's something to listen to. And even no matter what, regardless of any language barriers, uh, the music, cliched it may be, really can be, I feel, an international language of sorts. But uh, again, the reception seems quite good uh, in Europe. And then surprisingly, all across Asia, the South Pacific, Eastern North America, and I would wager South America too. So pretty much every continent. Um, the only areas that might not be able to get it might be parts of the West Coast and maybe Hawaii. But that's about it. They might even get it. It might, might be literal uh, worldwide coverage. So, something I'm excited about. I have never had the opportunity before to broadcast uh, at this sort of heading uh, direct to Africa like this, uh, nor have I had the ability to have such large coverage, for lack of a better word, of every other continent simultaneously. Um, but it's very exciting. Now, the time might not be ideal for everyone, because remember, this is targeting listeners particularly in Africa at a prime time hour. But nonetheless, I want to give the time and frequency so you could listen in if you have a radio. So, the frequency is 11920 kilohertz. That's 11920, that's 11920 kilohertz. I'll say that again, that's 11920 kilohertz. It's a little bit of a higher frequency, which is why it's able to get such good range. 11.920 megahertz. If you have a radio that uses that, 11920. It is in the 25 meter band. 11920 kilohertz. Now, the time. I'll just go through the time zones, starting with Eastern time, and then I'll take it all the way over to uh, New Zealand time, since listeners over there, I've heard from them too. So, the broadcast is heard. It's one hour in length, and it's heard on a weekly basis every Monday afternoon. So every Monday afternoon, okay? Every Monday afternoon. So the next broadcast will be Monday, the 25th of December, 2023, Christmas Day. So if you don't tune in then, I don't blame you. 
then the next one will be New Year's Day. And I've have, I have this going at least through February. And I'll probably find a way somehow to just keep it going after that. But every Monday afternoon, at the time of 2 p.m. Eastern, so if you're on the East Coast of the U.S., 2 p.m. Eastern. If we hop overseas a bit, that would be for listeners in the U.K., 7 p.m. GMT. If we move over into Central Europe, that would be 8 p.m. Central European time. Going now into Africa, that would be 8 p.m. West Africa time. 9 p.m. Central Africa time. Going further to the east, that would be 10 p.m. East Africa time. And in the Middle East, that would be around 10 p.m. for listeners across much of the Middle East as well. Although in Iran, that would be 10.30 p.m., again, Monday evening. Over in India, it would be 12.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, because now it would start getting overnight in that part of the world, but the signal still seems to be getting through. So for listeners in India, any night owls there... That would be 12.30 a.m., India Standard Time, Tuesday morning. Over in Japan, for any hardcore night owls, again, of which there seem to be a few, or early risers, that would be 4 a.m., Japan Standard Time, Tuesday morning. For any extremely hardcore night owls, or again, people just waking up, uh, for listeners in, let's say, Sydney, Australia, that would be 6 a.m., Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And then for listeners in New Zealand, that would be 8 a.m. New Zealand Daylight Time, Tuesday morning. So all the time zones stretching from 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday afternoon, all the way over to 8 a.m. Tuesday morning in New Zealand. So a huge span of times and time zones. Uh, Perhaps not the most convenient for everyone, but I would wager many listeners, at least in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and uh, across the Americas, uh, might be able to listen in, and then anyone who's up late uh, elsewhere might be able to catch the signal as well. Uh, But again, remember those times. You could always rewind the show and uh, note them down. And the frequency, 11, 9, 20 kilohertz, 11920 kilohertz. So, uh, hope you could all listen in if you're interested. And, uh, it's good to be back on the air again with, uh, 100 kilowatts of power so far. But if the opportunity presents itself, I'll get the power up to 250 kilowatts, or maybe even 500. But, uh, so far, the 100 kilowatts seems to be doing an impressive job. And again, the uh, broadcast one hour in length, discuss the news of the day, uh, talk about some current events, give my news analysis, uh, where I'll essentially elaborate on the stories, give my opinion, and uh, talk about a lot of things that, you know, I'm not going to chance it on this podcast. It's not to say, oh, this is some sort of controversial broadcast or anything. It's just, 
I know I could talk about whatever I want to talk about, however I want to talk about it. And for the folks that tune in, the commentary is generally highly regarded. A lot of people like hearing it, so that's why I still do it. And that'll usually encompass about half of the broadcast. And then after that, I'll open up the email. I'll take listener music requests. I'll pretty much play anything. And uh, then I'll play whatever songs I could squeeze in. Sometimes I'll talk about the songs, give a little trivia. I'll try to give some listener shout-outs as well. And, uh, and that'll be that. And, you know, then we repeat it next week, and it's a lot of fun. You know, it's like the kind of show that you could listen to regularly, or you can listen to it every so often. And either way, I think it could make for the most enjoyable listen. Now, if you would like a broadcast schedule in writing, sometimes it's just easier to consult it when it's all written down and everything, uh, that's fine with me. All you have to do is request one, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. And uh, this transmission provider, uh, very reliable. I've worked with them before. Not with this precise facility, um, but I've worked with them before. So I know that everything is in very good hands. It's on very firm footing. And essentially, as long as it can be kept going, then it's, it's going to continue. Uh, that's all that there is to it. So very well received so far. Again, as far as audience metrics are confirmed... I don't think the reach of this is ever going to be able to be quantifiable. Because, again, there's no way I'll be able to know how many people are out there in, you know, rural Sudan, in the Darfur region, listening in. Whether there's no one listening or whether there's a bunch, I I would have no idea. There's no way to quantify any of that. So I could only go off of the, the results that I could actually get, the ones that you know, the folks that email in and send in a reception report or any uh, thoughts they may have. But the fact that there was that immediate response from South Africa uh, was very encouraging. You know, that there were people listening right off the bat. And uh, all the feedback was was very positive, too, which was nice to see. So it was very encouraging. And uh, that's why I'm going ahead with this and uh, making this formal announcement. So it's primarily targeting the African continent, but again, it'll be heard uh, in all other continents, at least to an extent, as well. So that's where things stand, and uh, if it's something of interest to you, hope you could tune in and uh, see how the signal is on your end. All right, before we get into the rest of the show, I also wanted to mention... There is going to be a predictions show for 2024. So understand that there is going to be one. If you want to send in a prediction a little early, go for it. You're more than welcome to. But I'm probably going to make some sort of announcement a little closer to or just after New Year. uh, Formally announcing that. But just a heads up, if you are wondering about a predictions show for 2024... Uh, the answer is most definitely yes. So, there you have it. A predictions show is a go. It is going to happen. 
most definitely. And uh, already, if you have a prediction you want to make, you could send one in. Don't hold back, just predict what you want, tell it like it is, and uh, I'll do the rest. So, just giving you all an early heads up about that. Yes, it will be the predictions show coming up again, formally announced around New Year, and then I'll give a little time to, of course, uh, get some, you know, some more folks to send them in. But if you want to get a head start, uh, then you're welcome to send in a prediction anytime. You could send one in right now if you want, and that's fine by me. So, some exciting news there. I've never been on the shortwave to Africa before. It's one of the last places in the world uh, where there still is a mass audience to the medium, you know, albeit, again, a disconnected audience, folks that might not be in the position to easily send in an email, but uh, where people still listen to the radio a lot, and uh, where some folks just scanning around might be able to come across the broadcast. Another good thing is that the frequency is a clear frequency. There is no interference, and it is in the middle of a popular broadcast band, but there are no other stations on that frequency, so it is going through uninterrupted, uh, without any sort of obstruction from any any parties or stations, etc. And this broadcast band, at the same time, has many stations like the BBC, the VOA, Radio France, Deutsche Welle, China Radio, all these international broadcasters, and uh, since it's right there next to these stations, there might be some listeners from those stations that might scan around and suddenly come across the, the broadcast, and they might think, huh, oh, you know, this is something new, I might, I might check it out. And uh, so it's in a very good location as far as frequencies go, and again, it was really on probably the best possible frequency uh, because there's no interference. So the people that will hear it uh, can hear it. They're not going to be struggling to listen. There's not some other station messing with it or anything. Uh, They will be able to hear it, uh, especially in the target area, crystal clear. So uh, the frequency I'm, I'm feeling very good about. And again, so far the results seem to prove that feeling correct. So some exciting news there. And uh, with that, with the announcements out of the way, let's get into the rest of the show. This is VORW International. Back at it again with another podcast. Sometimes, and it's not all that frequent, granted, I actually will get a little motivated to get to the microphone. Comically, it oftentimes is at the most inopportune times, and that's simply the fact of the matter. But, uh, you know, I could have a day, I've got energy, my voice is good, I'm feeling good, but I don't want to get to the microphone. I don't want to do this, I don't want to say anything, I just don't want to do it. I know it sounds harsh to say that about your own show, but there you have it. Uh, That goes from a lot of the time. I just don't want to do this. That's why there aren't shows every other day. And mind you, there's a difference between hating something 
and just not wanting to do something all the time. Uh, and I must emphasize that. If I hated doing this show, I would have just killed it off, and that would have been that. You know, but I don't, because I still enjoy it. It just has to be at the right time. Because I feel anyway, if I just forced it, you, you'll be able to tell, you know? People can tell. You could always tell when someone is doing something because that's what they want to do versus they're doing it out of some sort of, you know, forced sense of obligation. And it's like, you know, they're acting like someone's got a gun to their head and they just have to do it. You're right. You will obviously be able to tell as far as my delivery is concerned. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, sometimes those times do come about where it's like, I do want to do the, the podcast a bit. And that's why I try to stress that and despite whatever protests there may be, this program is indeterminate, and it will be released as it is, you know, and that's all that there is to it. And uh, I just do that to try to ensure, I kind of roll my eyes as I say this, but I'll just say it anyway, uh, a hopefully quality uh, program as opposed to just serving up literal garbage at a higher frequency. But, you know, that's just how I see it. You might, as a listener, see it differently. I'm sure there are differing viewpoints from uh, the perspective of the listener versus the actual uh, creator of the program, i.e. how you see it versus how I see it. Uh, but nonetheless, what I was getting to is that sometimes, you know, there are those instances uh, where I will feel the motivation to actually get here to the microphone and do the program... But oftentimes, and I feel sometimes as though um, the universe has a sense of humor, perhaps, because so often it seems that the times when I actually have the motivation, when I'm actually thinking, yeah, I want to I wanna get myself to the microphone, I want to just go and do it, are the worst, most inopportune times one could possibly conjure. I kid you not. So, this is how it'll be. I'll be winding down. Tiredness will be increasing. The yawns are going to be uh, on the increase. I feel like maybe I've got 30 minutes left before sleep has finally arrived. And now all of a sudden, I'm feeling so motivated to start recording the podcast. Oh, <laughs> yeah, real great timing there. And sometimes I will. I could squeeze a couple minutes out and, you know, that's that. And other times, it'll just happen where the one day I have something else to do, that's when I actually want to do the podcast. Or there will be some other problem, like I'll have a sore throat or I'll have some awful allergies. Or, as is the case today, I have this cut on the inside of my mouth, and it's probably in the worst location you can imagine. And uh, I'm sure you've all dealt with these before. You know those times where you'll get a cut, and it could be on your cheek or on your lip, it's the same thing in this case, you accidentally bite yourself, and it's at such an area that it kind of scrapes against uh, your teeth a little bit when you eat or when you talk, or really when you just open your mouth, and as a result, it's like it just constantly hurts. Every time you either try to eat or you try to speak, etc., well, that's what I have right now. 
but despite that, I'm actually just powering through it nonetheless because I just want to do the show. So now I could I could uh, shake my fist and say I'm actually putting my literal blood, sweat, and tears into this. Even if I'm not really, it makes it sound like it's, I don't know, makes it sound like I guess I'm doing more than I really am. But uh, nonetheless, I, I have noticed, though, that so often this happens at, like, the worst time. I think, why can't this just happen at uh, some other point, right? Just on a normal day. But no, no, it always has to be one of these, one of these times. But I guess I should just be glad that I still have that motivation, even if it is infrequent and inopportune, that there is any. And uh, that's where things stand. This is going to be a straightforward program for the most part. I'm just going to go on whatever drive I'll, you know, I happen to at the beginning, which is where we are right now. And uh, then for the rest of the program, as per usual, open up the email and uh, read and respond to a number of emails that came in, and that'll be that. Obviously, quite the month for current events. So many of these things, though. It gets worse and worse as far as, you know, the polarization goes. Not the fact that you can't, that, you know, that people will disagree with you, but the fact now that it's reached a level where if you go against the narrative, you're not even allowed to say it anymore, uh, which is a damn shame, but... It's where it is. It's how it is. So, you know, there's two sides to every story. Sometimes there's one party that's unequivocally correct, indisputably so, and that's clear as day. Uh, Sometimes it's not that straightforward. Sometimes there are folks that want to make you think that it is, but that's not necessarily the truth. Just because someone is saying it doesn't make it gospel. Just because. Just because the media has a certain narrative doesn't all of a sudden mean that they are some sort of infallible institution and uh, that you just should believe that unconditionally. You know, sometimes the truth really is just a straightforward thing and situation looks a certain way because it is a certain way and it's just, it's nothing more complex than that. But sometimes it is. And sometimes, for one reason or another, there will be folks that want to make you think that certain things are, but maybe that's not how it really is. And uh, that goes for a lot of things, where uh, in many instances, there are two sides to a story, and they only ever want you to hear one side of it. And not even, doesn't matter about the other side, right? It doesn't matter if there's any truth whatsoever, you just can't even hear it. You aren't even allowed to think about it. You, you can't, right? You're not allowed to. That's not right, but that's reality. So, I have to be careful with my discussion of current events because I, I like to promote critical thinking. I like to promote, okay, to the best of our ability... These are the facts. Make of it what you will. Right? That's how I like to present things. That's what I try to do. 
in my shortwave broadcasts. I do it there because I can do it, that's why. Because it's the one place where I can get to the microphone. I could talk about the current... I could talk about any, anything I want. They're not going to censor me. You know, I could get on the air, and I could just drop the F-bomb for 60 minutes straight, and they will broadcast it, as is, because that's what they do. You can do that, too. You want to say anything you want, any way you want. You could contact a shortwave station. They'll put you on the air. And that freedom, knowing that as a result, <laughs> you know, if I do something stupid, it's just me to blame. I just kind of like that, you know, where you don't have the algorithms or all of that stuff, you know, breathing down your neck and you got to be so scared about how can I even read this article or what? it's like, what kind of world have we come to where that's just how it is? Should never be that way. Never should have been, but it is. And it's, you know, you can't, you can't fight it. So, oh well. If you ever do want to hear, though, my perspective on everything going on in the world, you can always uh, listen into it. I encourage you strongly. It's a show that I really, I love doing it. And I do it twice a week, every week. And I open up uh, the broadcast with, oh, good, I'd say, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of discussion. I do hard news. I will talk about whatever is going on. And I try to present the facts, uh, regardless of where it stands compared to the mainstream. And then I will impart personal analysis thereof. My opinions might not always be this... Uh, my opinions might not always be broadly agreeable, but this is the most important thing. You know what I do? I always separate where the statements regarding where things stand end and where my opinion begins. I just break things down. I talk about what I want to talk about, how I talk about it. And uh, it's been very well received. A lot of folks enjoy listening into it. So you can listen in too. There are ways to listen. You, If you have a shortwave radio, I encourage you to use it. But uh, you could listen online. You, you still can. Uh, check the description. All the ways to listen are right there. And uh, you don't even need a radio. So maybe think about it. I recommend it. You know, so it's like the geopolitical stuff. I just can't really go there on this, but I cover the Israel-Palestine conflict extensively in that. And uh, again, I have lots to say and I have a lot of thoughts on it. I just want the death to stop. That's that's how I feel. And if I'm scum for thinking that, I don't care. Then I am. And that's fine with me. Sorts of labels I couldn't care less about. People live in fear of them. And that's another problem. You know, just don't care anymore. So that's, that's my uh, MO at this point. So, looking around, aside from, like, the hard news, you know, you've got the 
political stuff, of course, going on. What is this? Super Bowl champ Matt Ulrich, dead at 41. I've never heard of him, which... Yeah, I, I really couldn't tell you who a single football star is, though. I have no idea who, who any of these folks are. Former Indianapolis Colts offensive lineman of the 2006 season has died, age 41. No cause of death. What is this? Kind of on a medical note, too. When Devlin Carr went into the hospital for a colectomy in September 2023, she thought she was getting surgery to repair her colon, which had ruptured after a long battle with chronic pain, constipation, and inflammation, and was told she was going to get an ostomy, mm -hmm, an extra opening uh, to her abdomen, or in her abdomen, where waste would be collected in a, in a bag, yeah. But instead, Devlin, 38, woke up to the news that she had stage 3 colon cancer, and while she was under anesthesia, doctors had to give her a hysterectomy because everything was like concrete. As the Alberta, Canada resident explains to the media, my husband gets a phone call halfway through the surgery saying, Here's the problem. We found a tumor, and it's cemented to her uterus. He said he was told that the tumor was the size of a baseball, and in order for it to be removed, a hysterectomy was necessary. And he was left with the decision as to whether or not they should proceed with that. Uh, he said they'd thought about having children, but the doctors explained that that would not be a possibility anyway. What a choice to have to make. And the story continues, you know, obviously there... No one was really happy about the decision. And uh, said there's a 50% chance of the cancer returning. And, uh... Needs to undergo chemotherapy. It's crazy. Like I said, though, what a decision. What a decision to have to just... They tell you you have to make this on the spot. You're not even the person... You're not even the person there. I mean, I hope that... That they, uh, know each other well enough. You know, the fact that they... But again, how many people even have that sort of plan? It's like, you know, hell, I, I even analyze in my mind the what-ifs, but you can't account for everything, especially when it's something that... that you're not even thinking about. So... You know, it's a sad... Especially when, you know, like in her case, they had a had a plan going forward, and now that's that's not going to happen, at least a certain way. Granted, as the hospital posited, it wouldn't happen no matter what, but... Baskin-Robbins has outdone itself, this article claims. New ice cream flavor. Turkey Day Fixins. Untraditional ice cream sensations of sweet potato, spice, I guess just regular, just your, your average spice, right? 
cornbread pieces, and swirls of cranberry sauce. We continue to push the boundaries of flavor innovation at Baskin Robbins. Director of their brand marketing said in a statement. said, if you're wondering if it's the biggest misfire in the company's history, think again. A case study of Baskin-Robbins' growth noted a lot of failures on the company's road to greatness as it toyed with new tastes. Among them were ketchup ice cream, as well as Grape Grape Britain, and gummy, gummy gumdrops, the last one reportedly contained hard candy that broke people's teeth off. Bits of cornbread by comparison relatively tame. If they said that that would break people's teeth off, then my mouth, forget it. There would be teeth breaking off, in my case. Without question. No doubt. And finally, and this is... Well... You know, I went on the whole spiel about geopolitics and, you know, current events and the things that you can and you can't talk about, which is the reality of things. It's like, and that's the thing. I could, I could try to navigate my way around certain situations, but it's like, I can't do it the way I want, and I'm taking a risk. And I'm not just being paranoid because I've had this happen to me before, where I naively before 2020, thought I could just cover the news on YouTube. Then COVID happened, and I shared the facts as they were available, as they were presented, and where did that get me? I almost got the channel shut down for it. So, I'm done playing that game. But sometimes, uh, an event anyway, uh, will come along and, you know, you think, well... The people need to know, right? The people just have to hear it. And uh, if something happens, I'll take the loss, and I could at least try to tell myself it wasn't uh, in vain. And this is one of those things. Breaking news. South Korea declares war on bedbugs after surge in reported cases. Uh, Yeah, you probably hate me for that, but when I saw such a dramatic title, I couldn't help myself. South Korea has become the latest country to declare war on bedbugs, uh, following a wave of outbreaks with bathhouses, university dorms, and train stations across the country on high alert. 30 suspected or confirmed infestations have been reported since the end of October, prompting the government to announce a four-week campaign aimed at eradicating the blood-sucking pests. Previously, the country had been practically free of bedbugs following past extermination campaigns, with just nine infestations being reported since 2014. The sudden resurgence of the pests, which follows reports of similar outbreaks in France and the UK in the UK, and an increase in cases in the United States is spreading alarm among members of the public, with social media awash with pictures and accounts of people's encounters with the insects. 
pest control firms have been inundated with requests for help, while some websites have created dedicated sections to the problem, uh, offering users a place to share tips on how to deal with the pests and suggestions ranging from avoiding the cinema to standing on public transport. So obviously the war effort is in full swing over there. Should I throw away all electronics if I spot a bedbug? Asked a user, while another wondered, if I put double-sided tape around my mattress, would that stop the bugs getting on me? And another simply said, I'd rather have COVID than bedbugs. So, there you have it. So an all-out war. And uh, we'll see how the casualties wind up being. Obviously, I'm not rooting for the bedbugs this time around. I think South Korea will uh, handle this pretty well. They're, they're generally a pretty competent uh, country. I think, you know, they'll take it seriously. I think they'll, they'll take care of it. Everything's been pretty quiet with the shortwave, for the most part. The BBC, World Service, has uh, started up some emergency broadcasts for the Gaza Strip. Obviously, because there's really no internet there. Radio is the name of the game. A lot of media networks are realizing that. But that's how you could get your message over there. So, we've got that. Radio New Zealand, they're celebrating an anniversary. 75 years since Radio New Zealand started broadcasting on shortwave into the Pacific region. Originally using two 7.5 kilowatt transmitters in Titahi Bay near Wellington, Radio New Zealand began shortwave broadcasts to the Pacific in 1948. And uh, they're, the, they're the main voice to the Pacific at this point, on the shortwave anyway, after the uh, loss anyway of Radio Australia, which still should tell you everything you need to know about campaign promises, mind you, as if this is going to be the eye-opening thing. Still, the government of Australia, it's never coming back. They said, oh, we're bringing back the shortwave now that we're in charge. Years have gone by. It's not coming back. And, you know, their options to even get back on the air have actually gotten smaller and smaller. So, that should tell you everything that you need to know. But, uh... Radio New Zealand, I have to give them credit, they have really picked up the slack, and they, uh, they understand, they're one of the few stations these days that actually understands that there are still people that listen to shortwave, and that with the loss of Radio Australia, they're pretty much one of the only stations left serving this area, and I reached out to them, I sent them an email uh, in 2017, when Radio Australia went off the air, I said, I hope you realize where things stand at this point. You know, I told them, look, 
I think a good approach would be to emphasize the fact that Radio Australia, they did what they did, but we're still here for you, and we are going to be, you know, present a message of confidence to a lot of listeners in the region who are now totally despondent. And uh, amazingly, they actually listened to uh, my advice, and they actually did just that. And they had a campaign where they promoted uh, the shortwave service and announced, we still believe in it, and we're not giving up on the Pacific. And they haven't. They actually meant it. Where uh, Radio New Zealand maintains a 24-hour shortwave service to the Pacific, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, news programs, commentary, entertainment, music, you name it, providing a connection to uh, the outside world, to all the folks there who maybe haven't any internet. Be that if they're out there on the islands and the infrastructure isn't all that great, or if they're out there on boats, on various ships, I mean, you name it, in emergencies with cyclones or earthquakes, tsunamis. I mean, they are there, around the clock. And uh, even more encouragingly, uh, Radio New Zealand has ordered a new shortwave transmitter. They've actually, last year, they ordered a new 100-kilowatt shortwave transmitter. They've spent 2.5 million U.S. dollars uh, for the investment, They said, This investment secures a productive future for our unique voice, stated RNZ Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief Paul Thompson. The attraction of the shortwave service is its robustness and the ability to have the signal travel great distances and achieve good audiences. And the funding has also allowed... Radio New Zealand to increase its analog shortwave broadcasting time slots. And they noted that after Radio Australia shut down its broadcasts in 2017, only China Radio International and Radio New Zealand are providing direct shortwave broadcasts to the Pacific region. Uh, They continued, the value of the Pacific service can't be underestimated. Our voice reaches all parts of the Pacific at times with critical information, such as cyclone warnings. The shortwave broadcasts are a lifeline source of information which helps support sustainable social and economic resilience. And the new transmitter is going to be put into operation early 2024. So right now, Radio New Zealand has two transmitters. They have a 100-kilowatt transmitter that broadcasts in AM mode, and they have a 50-kilowatt transmitter that broadcasts in a digital DRM mode, uh, which doesn't have much popularity these days. It was sort of like a technology that was tried and failed. In the early 2000s, there were a lot of stations that thought it was going to be the technology of the future, and it wasn't. It fell through. But anyway, they uh, were noting that their AM transmitter, which has the audience, was getting a bit old, and obviously if that broke down, they would be out of luck. 
So now they've got a brand new transmitter on the way, and what they could do now is they could broadcast on multiple frequencies as well. Now that they'll have two transmitters, uh, they could either broadcast on two frequencies simultaneously in case one frequency has any interference, etc. Or they can save the older transmitter as a backup unit in case it's needed, in case there's any sort of disaster, emergency, if there's any um, any issue with the new transmitter, etc. And uh, encouragingly, they said that they hope this new transmitter will continue their shortwave service into the 2030s, which is very uh, good news. And uh, obviously they're just words, but uh, it's a very optimistic picture to actually mention uh, that they hope for those broadcasts to remain for well over a decade. Uh, That's very good news. Now, I hope their actions will reflect that, but if that's the case... Uh, then obviously listeners in the Pacific uh, will be in good hands, at least as far as, you know, getting information is concerned. It's like you could you could talk all you want about bias, that's understandable, but the fact that, especially in the cases where if there's a tsunami, or if there's a major uh, cyclone, etc., I have listened to Radio New Zealand, they will cover it, and they will provide some darn good coverage of it. That in and of itself makes this all worth it. And I guarantee those broadcasts have saved lives. So, uh, that's really good to see. It's very nice. It's like night and day. Radio Australia just couldn't care less. The hell with them, right? What do we care? Um, But Radio New Zealand took the approach that I really wish more stations would take. And I always like also that they've no objection with listeners outside of the target area, uh, listening in as well. Because, you know, the shortwave broadcasts will be heard in the Pacific, but you could pick them up in the U.S., you could listen in Europe, you could hear them in South America or Asia, etc. And they say, yeah, if you could hear it, I mean, listen, go for it. So we love hearing from listeners in the U.S., you know? By all means, uh, if you could get a signal of our Pacific service, yeah, Tune in, feel free to write in, send in a report, go for it. You know, they're very friendly to our listeners. Radio Australia, near the end, was like the exact opposite. It was like, if you're not in the Pacific, I don't care. Don't even, don't even write in, we don't want to hear from you. And then even, they were very selective. Oh, if you're in the Pacific, but you're not this type of listener, uh, we don't want to hear from you. The reality of it is that Radio Australia had an agenda. They just didn't... They wanted to get rid of the broadcasts, and uh, they made up whatever BS excuse just to do it. Uh, Which they did, because it's a technology that not a lot of people understand, important or otherwise. You know, there's a lot of people that just don't really... They don't get it. And, uh, And it requires a lot of explanation, granted, but you see that gets exploited. And, uh, they knew that. So, that's exactly what they did. And, you know, they there was one moment, but sadly this was after everything was said and done and, you know, it was over. They got grilled by a couple 
Australian senators that tried to bring it back, but they couldn't. They're some of the only folks that actually believed in it at that level. And uh, they asked the folks at Radio Australia, you know, who were responsible for the shutdown, they said, well, how exactly do you know that you have no listeners? How can you, can you prove that to us? And they were trying to say, well, we, uh, we uh, did a survey. And they were saying, all right, well, can you discuss exactly the parameters of this survey and, you know, the amount of responses, you know, where this was conducted, how this was conducted, because they were going on there, so we took this survey and this is everything. They said, all right, so tell us more about it, right? If you made this impactful decision, then the survey better be eye-opening. And they refused. They said, oh, we can't uh, discuss that, you know, we uh, uh, we can't tell you. Finally, it was like pulling teeth. They were able to say, okay, so how many people did you even survey here to make this decision for the whole region? And they surveyed like a hundred people. And that was it, just a hundred random people. And uh, I thought, so that's what you that's what you did. You have such a small sample size. And of course, it's like that's one of the tricks that a lot of these things use. So survey results showed this or that, but then the sample size is such, such a small amount of people that you could skew it any way you want and uh, get any result you want. That's exactly what they did, so, you know. Because people won't understand the explanations about shortwave radio right off the bat, they will understand, oh, see, this survey shows that only this percentage listen. They'll think, oh, that's a waste. Yeah, cut it, pull it. That's what they did. Dirty tricks. But uh, they're not the only ones. All right. That's everything I want to talk about, so let's get into the fan mail segment next. We'll read and respond to some letters. Stay tuned. So this next portion of the program is what I refer to as the mailbag show, or the fan mail segment. And it's very simple. All I do is I open up the email, and I read whatever feedback comes in. It's a free-form part of the program. And uh, it's really where I just read your feedback, uh, whatever questions, comments, uh, statements you may have. Uh, you could take it any way you want. It's a blank slate. And uh, as you'll evidently see in a moment, uh, really it's just a free-form part of the program. So if you have anything you would like to share with the program, again, choice is yours. And uh, it's a blank slate, so anything, just go for it. You're always welcome to send in an email to the following email address, v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Once again, that's v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com think about it, and uh, obviously if you're not really sure, if you want to send in something, but you're not so sure as uh, to inspiration perhaps, just listen in, see the sort of stuff that uh, comes in, and who knows, maybe that will yield uh, some ideas. You never know. And with that, uh, let's just take a look and uh, take it from there. First question 
comes in from an anonymous listener. I am currently listening to your latest podcast episode and was very curious in knowing which briefcase you were using and what did you carry in it and how did you pack it. I tried using a briefcase for a little bit, but found it isn't very practical in my day-to-day college life and accepted that they were just for business and lawyers and not cars. I don't have to walk very much and didn't need to use public transportation. Uh, Nothing to eat or drink because in the business setting, there are always bits of food and drinks wherever they go. So thank you for your question. So, I'm not particularly sure as to the uh, particular um, make and uh, model of the briefcase. I know that sounds sort of a a silly response, but uh, it just escapes my memory, I'm afraid. But it was a nice one. It was... Now, I should mention, it's a briefcase, but it's one of the, uh... It's not one of, like, the hard plastic ones. It's a, It was a black leather one. But it was very formal. It was very professional. It was something that you would sort of see uh, someone in, like, a... Like a formal Wall Street office environment uh, carrying. And it was a very nice one at that. Uh, it was... It exceeded my expectations as far as what I was looking for. I, uh, uh, when I was looking for a briefcase, it just happened to be one of those things that just emerged at the right place at the right time, and it was better than even what I had in mind, and I was very happy with it. And uh, it had a shoulder strap, uh, but it also, of course, had the handle to use, and uh, I could alternate Uh, So sometimes I would just carry it with the handle. Sometimes I would use the shoulder strap. Uh, It all depended. And uh, again, it was just a very high quality. It was dependable. And it had several little compartments uh, so that there was one compartment in the front that I would put any papers in. I would put any folders. Sometimes I'd be old school these days and I would read a newspaper or a magazine. Uh, or some books, I would just put those in the front area. And uh, then in the main compartment, I could put whatever. I could put in a laptop, I could put in more papers or books. Uh, Sometimes, because back in 2016 or so, I would film uh, occasionally in public, I would bring about uh, a little tripod, as well as the camera and uh, any sort of cables of equipment in that regard. That would be a good place to put them. Uh, sometimes I would put uh, my scarf or gloves in there. Uh, maybe some, uh, like a little, one of those little packets of uh, Kleenex, you know, tissues or whatever in there. And uh, just miscellaneous things. But uh, it was just... It, it was exactly what I was looking for. And uh, as far as what I would carry around, it would just worked out very nicely. So I probably wouldn't be for everyone, uh, but it was just something that, again, worked in my case. Jack is checking in. Says, I thought you might be interested to know that the fine, faults, the fine folks at Quickrete have your finely attired back in regards to what clothing is appropriate for outdoor work, or at least for pouring a slab of concrete. See attached photo from back of bag. 
So this is a, a concrete mix. And uh, on the back of the bag, <laughs> sure enough, they uh, have the instructions. And then, of course, they have some little illustrations of how to uh, utilize the, the concrete mix. And uh, the guy that they have doing that in the illustrations is uh, indeed addressed <laughs> as I would be if I were doing that. Has a dress shirt on, tucked in with some black pants, has gloves, and uh, looks like he's even wearing a necktie that he has tucked into the shirt as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I like it. That's great. That's just just great to see. Yep, that's that's how I would be doing it. <laughs> Thanks, Jack, for sharing that. It's appreciated. All right, what's next? Curran writes, As a huge fan of shortwave, I'm sure you vividly remember the first time you heard yourself on the shortwave radio. I'd love to hear you recall that on a future VORW podcast. Memories of your first shortwave broadcast, how you felt, what it meant to you at the time, and anything else you may wish to add. Hope you're well, Curran. Thanks, Curran. And that's a good question, and it's one that's going to elicit probably a long response, uh, of which I'm sure some people will roll their eyes at. And uh, to those folks, I say keep rolling them, because uh, you're going to get a long response anyway. It's my show. So, you know, it is what it is. You could go listen to the... Uh, the VORW show from my arch nemesis who hates shortwave radio. And uh, you could go listen to that instead because uh, you've got yourself a long, a long uh, tangent coming right up. So, oh gosh, where, where to begin? I vividly remember, of course I do, uh, the very first time I heard myself on uh, the shortwave. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of context first. So, I was, you know, shortwave radio is one of those interests that immersed me right at the, right from day one. And I think many of us have similar instances, not with shortwave radio necessarily, but uh, when you just find some sort of interest or passion or whatever, and it's like immediately from day one, you are just hooked and you can't get enough of it, you know, and that's how it was uh, with me with shortwave radio, right from day one. There was just immediate interest, fascination, etc. And uh, again, I was just hooked right from the start. Now, that's not to say that my interest with radio began with shortwave, it didn't. Uh, I was always interested in radio as a medium. Uh, always have been. That's just that's just how it is with me. So, I was first interested with radio uh, when I discovered a police scanner uh, years before that. And I was an elementary school kid at the time. I was like in the third grade. But uh, I found this uh, police scanner that my father had. And uh, I remember he was listening to it one night, and I was amazed by it, the fact that, you know, you could sort of eavesdrop on these conversations uh, from the local police department, and uh, then you could scan around the frequencies, and you could hear the fire department, and then you could hear a fire department from a few towns over, 
you could keep scanning and you can hear some aircraft and all that sort of stuff. And I was just enthralled in it immediately. And uh, I thought that was just the coolest thing. So I was tuning around with it right then and there. And he showed me the antenna set up. He showed me that the scanner had this antenna that was connected to it, you know, like the typical just metal radio antenna. Um, but he also showed me this cable that he had and showed that up in the attic he had a much larger antenna for the scanner that looked like sort of like one of those old television antennas, you know, with all the different metal elements sticking out from it. And uh, said, yeah, when this is connected, you know, you could hear all sorts of stuff from the, the area. And he also gave me this book that had all the different uh, frequencies in it. So I was immediately drawn to this. And uh, after school or even before school, I would just take to the scanner and, and listen around and I would comb through the book and I would listen to all the different frequencies and see what I could pick up and see how far I could listen. Of course, I uh, quickly found the frequencies that my school buses used to communicate as well as the frequencies that some of the personnel from the school would use and uh, plugged them into the scanner and would kind of listen to that a bit too. It made for some amusing uh, listening. I know, granted, these are all two-way communications. You know, you think like walkie-talkies and stuff. Um, but still, just that aspect of radio was fascinating to me. And uh, I always enjoyed hearing some of the farther stations as well. Uh, then as the years passed, you know, I still had that interest with the scanner. Uh, but then I began getting interested in broadcast radio, such as FM radio at the time. I had this little FM radio and uh, some headphones, and I would listen through the night, and I would... I realized if I held it a certain way, you know, in this certain room, I could pick up a station from upstate New York, and hearing some of those more distant stations was, again, fascinating to me. Sometimes there would be uh, instances where I had this tape recorder and I would pretend to play radio on it, you know, I would pretend like I was one of the hosts on one of these FM stations. And I remember also thinking, I wish there were a way that I could be like, you know, a host of one of these radio stations, but the signal wasn't so limited regionally, but uh, it would have the coverage of an entire country or perhaps an entire continent. This was before I knew that shortwave radio existed, so mind you, I was already thinking of, of something that had existed for decades, I just wasn't fully aware of it. Uh, you know, I was aware of... At the time, I was aware of the words of shortwave, CB radio, ham radio. I was aware of all of this, um, but it required further research on my end, you know, but I was just aware of them as a, a concept, but I couldn't really tell you anything about them. It's like, I knew CB radio, oh, that's for the truck drivers, you know, and, and uh, ham radio, I 
kind of knew a tiny bit about that, and shortwave I didn't really know, I've just heard the word before. So it wasn't really until 2012 or so that I actually started researching that more. I kind of regret not researching that earlier, because I know, even if I had discovered the concept of shortwave radio, even back in uh, 2005, 2006, uh, there would have been so much more to listen to, even just in those couple years. Uh, So many stations I could have listened to that I hadn't the opportunity. Right, you know, Radio Netherlands, Radio Canada, Radio Croatia, so many more, never the opportunity, but it is what it is, nothing I can do about it. Uh, So it wasn't until 2012 that I actually started researching it, because I was still interested in radio at the time, and that's when numbers stations and uh, the buzzer, right, UVB 76, and all of that started entering the mainstream once again, and, uh, you know... UVB-76, I guess it still does, but especially then, it was painted with such an air of mystery to it. It was like, this Russian station has been broadcasting this tone for 30 years, and no one knows why. You know, they make it sound so <laughs> so sinister and uh, and bewildering. You know, really... I mean, I know the truth about it. Uh, UVB-76 is a channel marker. It's run by the Russian military. You know, and I have proof of that. As, uh, you know, it's pretty commonly reflected at this point. And uh, it's simply used to keep the frequency occupied, so no one else broadcasts on it, and that's it. And uh, Russia uses many other things. They do this for a bunch of stations, right? They have the pip, which is the same thing. It's just a little, a little boot, doot, doot, sort of high-pitched little beeping. They have the squeaky wheel, which sounds like a, like a squeaky wheel squealing away. And they have all sorts of other things. They have little frequencies that broadcast uh, just a letter in Morse code, but it's all for the same thing. It just keeps the frequency occupied. And that's what UVB-76 is, and the messages really are just either checks for propagation uh, or are to send messages to any military units, but that's that's all that there is to it. Uh, but anyway, you know, oh boy, you're such a killjoy. I uh, didn't know that at the time, and of course was captivated by the potential, right, the mystery surrounding it. So... I wanted to listen, right? I wanted to hear one of these uh, these messages because, of course, I didn't know what a channel marker was or any of that. So how could I listen, right? That's what I was looking for. How, how can I listen in? They said it's on 4625 kilohertz. Well, what kind of frequency is that? You know, all the frequencies I were familiar with were in megahertz. They were much higher. Right, 100.3 megahertz, that's an a, uh, right, that's an FM frequency. 
Those are all the FM stations. I was familiar with that. Even with the scanner, you know. It was, again, all in megahertz. So, 31.52, or 162.this, 171.that, etc., etc. But 4625 kilohertz? I just wasn't familiar with that. I thought, okay, I know it's a frequency, but how can I listen to that? They said, okay, it's a shortwave frequency. I thought, okay, so um, can I listen online? And sure, there was a, a way, but uh, it was just I, I was trying to understand the technology, and at first it wasn't making sense. So eventually, I found this live stream from some guy in Ukraine who just had a radio set up and had a live stream of the audio of it. And I thought it was cool. I would have that live stream open for days and days, uh, listening to the buzzer. Eventually I found out that there were other number stations out there, but again, I still wasn't totally sure how it all worked. You know, I was so used to continuous broadcasting, like you see with FM, I thought, oh, so if I tune into this frequency, am I just going to hear it? And uh, it took me a little while to grasp the fact that Not necessarily, you know, you have to tune in at a certain time, you have to be in the right place at the right time, and that took a little while to grasp. So, eventually, I discovered the WebSDR, which is an interactive online shortwave radio in the Netherlands, and I looked at it. I thought, I don't know what I'm looking at here. I thought, this thing looks like the controls to, like, a spaceship or something. I have no idea what to even make of this. I thought, I don't know what these numbers mean. I don't know what any of this is. But I'm going to try to figure it out. There was a lot of trial and error. That's why, if it's something you ever get interested in, and you look at this stuff, and you ever use like a web SDR or something, and you see all of this, and it just seems like beyond confusing. I d- just remember, I was just as puzzled going into this. I was just as lost as you might be. So don't think that it's one of those things that you're just expected to instantly just, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, there's no, no need to even explain anything. Um, because it's, it is quite, uh, it's a tricky thing. So, it required a lot of trial and error and, you know, doing things the wrong way. And, <laughs> and here I was thinking I was doing it right and, you know, kind of being humbled in that way, realizing, oh, wait a minute, I, oh, I, I had it totally wrong, you know. It was, uh, it required a lot of that. But they had, and I think they still have this chat box there where people will sort of post the frequencies that they're listening to and discuss the signals and stuff. And it was through that as well, I was able to learn the basics. And uh, I just started playing around with it. And I mostly used it at first to listen again to the buzzer. But uh, I quickly realized 
there's so much other stuff there too. All these different noises and sounds. I started tuning around one day. I thought, oh, AM, right? Like that's AM radio or something. I clicked on that and I started moving the little thing around. And then all of a sudden I heard this station, like this talk radio station in Spanish. And I kept moving the thing around. And there's one in French and there's one in in Russian and some African language. And oh, there's, you know, the BBC in English. I thought, wow, this is cool. And I was thinking, so what exactly are these stations that I'm hearing? And that's when I realized these are stations from all around the world uh, that are just broadcasting their radio shows to uh, a wide audience in all sorts of continents, you know? I thought, wow, this is this is incredible. And that prospect of distance that I had been so interested in was suddenly it was fulfilled right then and there. And that's when I began getting interested in shortwave broadcasting, and I quickly realized, while it's on the decline, there are still all sorts of stations that broadcast on the medium, and uh, the programming really appealed to me, and, uh, you know, it just went from there. So, anyway, as I became more familiar and more interested in it, uh, eventually, by 2014 or so, it had become a dream of mine to be able to broadcast my own show on the shortwave. But it was possible, but it required uh, financing, of course. Um, because anyone could broadcast their program, you just have to pay for it. And the stations will put you on the air. So, you know, I wasn't... I didn't really have any money at the time. But it was a dream. And in 2014, you know, I would take, like, these night walks, and sometimes I would, um, as I would be walking, I would just kind of think to myself, imagine if one day I could have my own radio show on the shortwave. It was just something that I was really, I was really wishing uh, that I could have been able to, to do. But, you know, at the time, and uh, I'm sure many of us have had these sorts of thoughts, you know, it's like, it's just a pipe dream. It's like, oh, I wish I could do this. Oh, I wish I could do that. But yeah, it's probably never going to happen, right? It's like, oh, I wish I could, I could uh, live here or go there or have this or do that. But it's like, yeah, it's probably never going to happen. But it's still nice to think about, right? It was one of those thoughts because at the time it just seemed so uh, cost prohibitive to me. And uh, obviously I had no expectation at the time that the YouTube channel was ever going to amount to anything. So I just, I wasn't expecting it. But sure enough, an opportunity uh, presented itself in early 2015 from a station up in Maine that said, uh, just for the new year, we are going to be offering airtime on this one transmitter for... It was something like $25 an hour, I thought. They said, look, it's not going to be the strongest transmitter in the world, but it will get your voice, your message out uh, at a cost that can't be beat. I thought, no way. So 
I shot them an email. I said, so this is, this is legit. Um, so you're telling me I could produce a program. I could say whatever I want. I could fork over 25 bucks and get on the air. They said, that's right. And they said, you could record it, make it an MP3 file. You could send it to us online, you know, at this site. And uh, you're good to go. So realizing that, wow, this is actually something that I could uh, perhaps do. I was able to uh, scrape together some funding. And in early 2015, I was able to make what previously seemed like a dream a a reality. And uh, thus the VORW, shortwave broadcast, was born. For a bit... In early 2015, uh, I did a radio show twice a week, every week. I think it was every Tuesday and Thursday evening, if I'm not mistaken. And it was from 11 p.m. to midnight Eastern. It was sort of like a late evening, nighttime broadcast. And I remember it was on the frequency of 5110 kilohertz. And it was broadcast from WBCQ up in Maine with a transmitter of about uh, 50 kilowatts. And the signal was aimed from Maine uh, toward the southwest. Uh, So mostly toward the, the United States. And again, the frequency, the antenna and all that, it wasn't the best. So the signal mostly reached areas, I would say, east of the Mississippi, uh, with varying strength. It kind of changed from one night to the next. Uh, But the fact that I was even having my voice heard uh, anywhere was incredible to me. So, the format of the program originally uh, is actually more similar to what I do on the shortwave right now, uh, then you'd really think. It's like right now it's much more smoothed out, and there are a couple changes, but it was like, so back in 2015, I would, because each broadcast was an hour long, I started out the broadcast with about 10 minutes of talk or so. I would just shoot the breeze for a couple minutes, uh, talk about how everything's going, And then I would uh, open up the news, talk about the news of the day, some current events. And uh, then after that, I would balance out the rest of the program uh, with music. Now, at the time, I mostly picked out the music. I was open to listener requests, but I didn't get a ton. Because again, it didn't have the largest geographic reach, and therefore it didn't have the largest audience in the world. Um... That, I outright admit. Uh, But, you know, again, the fact that I was even able to do it was more than I could ever ask for. Now, all these years later, today, the format of my radio show is quite similar, uh, whereas now I'll take usually the first 20 to 30 minutes, and I'll still shoot the breeze a bit, uh, and I'll also talk about current events, although I'll have much more of a, a deeper analysis of them than I had back in 2015, and then I'll play listener music requests uh, for the rest of the broadcast, because the show today 
over the years has accumulated uh, quite a substantial audience. So now I never run out of requests to play pretty much. And uh, I get constant music requests. So I'm always able to have a full playlist uh, with every broadcast as a guarantee. And uh, likewise, these days I have the show uh, on WWCR, uh, which is one of the strongest shortwave stations in the country. So it's able to get a much better signal out. Uh, but anyway, so I remember I did the, the broadcast in January 2015, and just the fact that I was able to hear my voice, it was surreal. I mean, I couldn't believe it. But it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And that's also when I realized very quickly shortwave broadcasting, if of course the finances allow, is yet another thing that I love doing. And that was another thing that I was hooked uh, immediately from. And I would give out the email in the broadcast and uh, asked for some reception reports and, uh, and listener responses. And sure enough, they, uh, they came in. And that was another incredible aspect that just at random here from all these folks from all around the country listening in. Uh, that was another incredible thing. Now, I will posit this. Even while 2015 doesn't seem like it's that long ago, I believe there were more shortwave listeners in the US, Canada, etc. back then than there are today. And I'll explain why. Because I wasn't on a very strong station... It was at a time when a lot of people might be starting to wind down and go to sleep. I really did not promote the broadcast all that much, or if I did, it was not to many folks online. So these were just people that happened to be tuning into the medium, came across this kind of fair to a weak station, and were still listening. Nowadays, I am able to do the broadcast on one of the most powerful stations in the country. I promote it heavily, and while of course I hear from many more listeners, just per capita, taking all that into account, I would be willing to wager that the audience today is much lower as far as the total number of potential listeners uh, than it was, you know, back in 2015. Uh, taking all that into account. I think if the exact same parameters were able to be established, uh, let's say that I broadcast with back then, and I repeated that today, the amount of feedback, provided I didn't really promote it any, would be considerably lower. Uh, I would still hear from people, but I think... I honestly believe the amount of feedback that would come in today might be... I don't know, 30% of what I got back then, maybe. So it's just because a lot of people, a lot of older listeners, they've died since then. That's the morbid fact. 
And, uh, you know, it's just where it stands. But likewise, you know, interference has gotten a bit worse. Uh, some people have just lost interest in the medium as more stations leave, etc. It's like, sure, there are new listeners too, but I'm just not going to sit there and, you know, uh, put my head in the sand and uh, pretend like it's anything else. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, I would get... It was a lot of fun, you know, to get the feedback too. And I actually have uh, another tab open. I used the same email after all these years, so I could go all the way back and see the feedback from 2015. And it was like, you know, there were folks still getting a good signal. I'll even take a look at a few of these old reports for the fun of it. It's like, let's go back to January 2015. It's like this guy was on the West Coast. He was listening on a Radio Shack radio. And he said that I tuned in on 5110. There are fades that occur about every second, but the audio is still mostly understandable. And I, I appreciated that. That was one of the first emails I got from someone all the way in California. Um, but most of the reports were a bit closer. So this guy said his name was, was uh, Alex. Columbus, Ohio, 5110, receiving fluctuating moderate strong signal on a sea crane radio. Then the same night, then the third report was from someone in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Signal was fair. When I was listening on my apartment's balcony, and then gave a summary of uh, the news that I discussed, and then said I played Do It Again by The Kinks, and All Around the World by Oasis, and said thanks for the, the great program. So that was from Arkansas. And, you know, just seeing all these reports, like, I was just, you know, in one night there was one that came in from Missouri, very well here in Missouri, Wanted to hear a song by Modern English. Uh, signal was great until the last 10 minutes in Franklinton, North Carolina. And, you know, it just continued. And obviously that gave me the motivation to try to, uh, to, try to keep it going then. And I was able to do so. And eventually, uh, WBCQ said... Uh, you know, there was there was some sort of issue on their end, um, but they said, we're going to have to move the time of your program, uh, but as a result, since this would obviously be inconveniencing you, uh, we would like to put you on our better frequency that we usually charge a little bit more for, uh, 7490 kilohertz, which is like their main frequency. And uh, they said... Um, they gave me a couple times, and I think I decided to be put on at 7 p.m. I think it was 7 p.m. every Thursday evening. And this transmitter was a bit stronger and had better audio quality than the one that was on 5110 kHz. And now, amusingly, so I stayed on that, and I, I reduced it to once a week, 
on 74.90 kilohertz, it was every Thursday evening, that was around again like April or May, amusingly, I quickly realized that the signal came in extremely strong in the New York City area, and that's where the bulk of response came in for that broadcast. It was like the transmission, even though it was on the shortwave, it was like it was just for the the New York City area, despite being transmitted from Maine. And pretty much every report I got for that one was uh, from listeners in, like, New York or New Jersey. And just kind of skimming through them, it was like, one of the first for 7490 was from Long Island, New York. Then the next one came in from the Bronx, New York. Forest Hills, New York, Rochester, New York, Summit, New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, Midtown, Manhattan, Fairfield, Connecticut, another one from Long Island, Uh, but eventually, you know, the costs just got too high, and around July of 2015, I had to uh, conclude things because I just couldn't afford it. But uh, that was the first time I ever did my broadcast from January to July, 2015. It was a a really good time. It was a very special time to me, something I'm never going to forget. And uh, those were good days. (laughs) They were very happy days. Eventually, I scrounged a couple bucks together here and there. Did a couple one-off broadcasts in 2016. But at the very end of 2016, I decided to resurrect the VORW shortwave service. I started it off by purchasing three weeks of airtime on 7490 every Thursday evening, just like the old days. And I thought, well, I'm going to do three weeks of regular broadcasts, and I'm going to see what happens. I'm taking a chance on this, but let's see. So, the YouTube channel was a bit bigger by then. I promoted it. I wasn't sure what results it was going to yield. Um, But all of a sudden, the amount of feedback had increased. And the biggest difference between the early 2015 broadcast and the late 2016 revitalization of the show is that I immediately, in the first airing, got enough listener music requests to actually just do an all-request hour. I thought, wow, you know, I was just kind of asking. I didn't really think... I I thought I was going to get, like, one or two, and here's a dozen. Uh, What the heck? Let's just play them. I'll ask for more the next week. Let's see what happens. So I did. More requests came in. I was able to, so I thought, you know, what the heck? Let's put an emphasis on the requests. It seems very well received. The listeners seemed to like it. The format was uh, uh, well received immediately. Um, By week three, I said, openly on the air, I said, look, uh, I funded these three weeks out of pocket. At that point, the airtime rate was higher because there wasn't any special deal. And, uh, I said, you know, I just bought these three weeks, that's it. 
Um, but obviously, there's already starting to be a regular audience, even just after three weeks, and a lot of interest. I said, look, I don't really like doing this, but I'm going to need a little bit of help if I want to keep this going. I mentioned how to support the broadcast, you know, Patreon and PayPal. And uh, I said, I'm going to try to do my part, but I'm just saying... I'm still going to need some help with this. I was very upfront about that. But sure enough, uh, there was enough help to keep it going. After those three weeks, I was able to buy a month of airtime. Then at the end of that month, I did some fundraising, got another month and then another month. And uh, I've never left the air since then. I have been on the shortwave multiple times a week every single week since December of 2016. The stations have changed. WBCQ was the main one that I used for a while. That's kind of a play on words. It was in the state of Maine, but it was also my primary flagship station. And uh, eventually I switched to WRMI in Florida. Uh, They became my main station and they offered higher power transmitters at 100 kilowatts instead of 50. So they remained my my primary station up until 2022, it was. And that's when I made the switch to WWCR, which also has 100 kilowatt transmitters, but their signal is just probably three four times as strong as WRMI, so they obviously must be doing something different um, because they just yield a totally different result. Uh, So then I made the switch in 2022 to WWCR, and I've been with them ever since. And over the years, I've been able to use all sorts of different stations, too. I was able to broadcast on a few AM stations, I was able to try out some different shortwave stations as well. Over in Europe, I was able to try out some low-power stations there, maybe about 10 kilowatts or so over in Germany. I was able to use some higher-power stations over there too, for a time. I was able to use a 100-kilowatt transmitter in Austria, was able to use a 150-kilowatt transmitter in Bulgaria. I was able to broadcast with 100 kilowatts from Uzbekistan, Armenia. Uh, For a time, I was even able to broadcast with 500 kilowatts. And uh, all those experiences, uh, a whole lot of fun. So, thank you, Curran, for that question. It was a good one. And, uh, led to some fun discussion, too, I feel. All right, let's look at some more questions now. Stan wants to know, uh, where can I get your short stories? Are they published anywhere? I'm afraid not, Stan. They aren't. They aren't available anywhere. I don't know if they ever will be. Maybe, but not at the moment. Uh, Most of them, to be frank, need a lot of work. But, uh, you know, if the time is ever right, 
Uh, you'll certainly know where to get them, and I'll make it very easy for them to be uh, obtained likewise. Sometimes I mark these emails down. I don't know why. I don't know why I do this. It's like this isn't even... Probably my fingers slipped, that must be. Sometimes I'll mark them as... for the podcast, but then they're really not. Probably was half asleep when I did that, that's why. Uh, this one comes in. I guess it's like a, an excerpt from... from the Wall Street Journal. The Philippines. Radio host killed live on Facebook. A radio anchor was shot by a man inside his southern Philippine station Sunday in an attack witnessed by people watching live on Facebook. The gunman gained entry into the home of provincial news broadcaster Juan Humalon, that's J-U-M-A-L-O-N, so it might be, might be Jumalone, but it seems like it'd be Humalone, but I, I might be wrong there. Uh, by pretending to be a listener, he then shot him twice during a live morning broadcast. The attacker snatched the victim's gold necklace before fleeing with a companion who waited outside on a motorcycle. An investigation is ongoing. I always notice with a lot of these things that when you see the two guys on a motorcycle, you run the other way. Wow. A brutal. Killed him. Took the uh, necklace, of course, right? <sighs> Poor listeners. And, and, you know, the victim and the listeners, too. The fact that they had to witness that. God. It's traumatizing. And uh, may those two responsible be, be put to justice. I hope so. David writes, It's come to my attention that you haven't reviewed Starry Soda yet for your unnamed drink series. Perhaps it is time. Also, you might want to name that series Thirsty for More. Yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks, David. That's actually a, a solid name. I, I have to give you credit. Yeah, yeah, I've never reviewed Starry Soda, but I actually tried it out. Maybe I should be more... more, uh... direct in the description, but I tried it out for some... some celebrity meal that no one really cares about. For, uh... I could... I, mean, I don't even remember the guy's name. That tells you everything you need to know. I don't even remember his name, and I don't even remember what he was. Or is Jamal Murray? I still don't know who he is, but uh, I guess whatever whatever he gets from KFC, right? He gets the Starry Soda. So I tried it out. It wasn't bad. You know, light citrus refreshment, I think. How popular is that soda these days? Maybe I should do a, a review of it just by itself. Is that one of those things that, like, is genuinely popular? Or is it an item that these places are just trying to shove down your throat for one reason or another? 
because there's a difference between the two. Is there actual genuine interest in it? Anyone can answer that. If you think it's just like a corporate gimmick, uh, let me know too. Because you get a lot of that too. There's so much artificiality these days in everything. They try to tell you that it's this, and it's really not, but it's everywhere. And I, I'm skeptical of a lot of things resultantly. But uh, there are things that are real, obviously, and and maybe the demand or interest with that soda is one of them. Anyone could answer that question. I'm just curious if it's actually a thing. Because I don't know. I, I really do not know the answer to that. Joe in South Wales, UK, says, been a fan since 2019. I listen on Spotify. Oh, I know where you get this. Is the, I have, I've checked this out, but I recommend it to anyone else. He said, a friend sent me this online, and I'm sending it your way. It's pretty famous among internet users, and I thought uh, you'd get a kick out of it. Yes, indeed. Oh, it's an excellent read, Joe. That's a good suggestion, and, uh, and uh, yeah, that friend of yours has good taste. Um, the story that was sent was Ted the Caver. And uh, I would strongly encourage anyone who finds this uh, to be of interest to uh, check it out. It's one of those things I've actually reread it a number of times. It's one of those those reads that just doesn't get old, you know. You could find it by just googling Ted the Caver, or you could alternately search Ted's Caving page. What you want to get to is uh, this Angel Fire website. You could also get to the direct URL by going to angelfire.com, that's A-N-G-E-L-F-I-R-E.com slash trek, that's T-R-E-K, slash caver, C-A-V-E-R. Hit enter, and then you'll get there. And, uh, oh, I love it. It's well-written. I love the nostalgic aspect, too. It's a website that was actually made in the early 2000s, back in 2001. It's just got that old internet feeling to it, and it's the real deal that was actually made back then. And, um... Oh, it's great. It's it's well-written. There's excellent explanations, illustrations. It's not a short read. But uh, it's one of those that'll quickly get... You'll get immersed in it real quick. And uh, all I'll say is that it's about someone who has an interest in caving. And uh, he starts uh, discovering this one passage in a cave. And uh, things go from there. But it is... uh, it is outstanding. Anyone who hasn't checked it out, again, I strongly encourage you to. Um, I, I, I officially give it my endorsement and uh, recommendation. Yeah, I first found out about that one years ago, and I was very impressed immediately. I reread it a couple years back, and I enjoyed it just as much. I might even check it out again at some point soon just to do it. And I bet I'm going to enjoy it just as much once again.
Yeah, it's great. It's a good suggestion. Simon in New Zealand. What are your thoughts on dumb phones or text? God, I got that one wrong. Or talk and text phones. I recently purchased an updated version of the Nokia 3310 and now primarily listen to your VORW podcast downloaded from SoundCloud on my Nokia. Now, I'm not old and perfectly capable of using a smartphone, but found the dumb phone far less stressful to manage and that it saves a lot of time despite the somewhat primitive keyboard. If you had to choose, would you prefer a dumb phone to a smartphone? And do you think social media is getting out of hand? Thank you. Uh, Simon from New Zealand. Oh, yeah, you better believe I would go with the dumb phone. If it weren't for this YouTube channel, I would never have gotten my smartphone. I never would have. I never had a smartphone up until late 2017. I needed to get one. I pretty much had no other choice at that point. And uh, it's very useful for the YouTube channel, but if I didn't do this, I would not have one. There's no point. I don't use it for anything but the camera, um, which again is mostly just for the YouTube, and uh, as a phone to call, if necessary, or uh, text. That's it, and I could do that with a Nokia. So, if I had the option, I would I would get a, a non-smartphone. I like them a lot more. I don't need all the features. I don't need all the bells and whistles. It's reliable. It's cost-effective. Uh, it's less of a surveillance device on you than the smartphone is, although it still is one, but it's not as extreme. And, uh... It would work for me because it has in the past, very reliably so. I used an Nokia for years, and it served me well. So, if I could go back, I would. Right now, I kind of can't, but if magically I had the, uh, the ability to, uh, I would. I would go back to an Nokia as well. And I think, uh, I think you made it, uh, you know... And uh, it's obviously up to everyone, you know, it's an individual thing, but uh, good on you, Simon, for, for going back to that. Something you don't see a lot of these days. And, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> you better believe social media has gotten out of hand. It's gotten out of control. It can't be. Forget it. It's too far gone. You know, it's like it's just to the point where it's an unsalvageable nightmare. That's social media for you. If it could just all cease to exist, um, that would be a good thing at this point. I, I say that even while I do the YouTube, it would be for the betterment of society. Yeah, it's driven so many wonderful, beautiful things straight into the ground, inexorably destroyed so many good things otherwise. That's not to say social media hasn't done good things. It has, but... I don't know. I feel like the bad is, uh, has outweighed the good and is doing so more and more and more. And what it's doing to people is uh, the worst of all. Yeah. It's too far gone. It's like I see it as a hopeless case. 
Yeah, you know, especially with the youngest generations, it's already like just throw in the towel at this point. Forget it. This is something that can't be fixed. It's impossible to fix. And guess what? It's going to get worse. That's it. You think it's bad now? You just wait. The party's just getting started, my friends. See, this is this is the pessimism that it uh, brings out, but. I see it how I see it. I'd like to be wrong there. Maybe I am. Hopefully I am, but... God, we are in for a world of hurt if things turn out the way I think that they will. May they not. By some miracle. I don't care what it is. May they not. May I be wrong. That's it. That's the only chance we have. I'm convinced of that. And could I just be some crazy with a fringe viewpoint? Sure, but I adamantly uh, believe it. Mateusz, in Poland, he just was wondering, how could I tune in to your broadcast, uh, the shortwave one on the radio? So, I'll send you some information. If there's anyone out there that wants any information, either about how to listen to the shortwave broadcast, or... If you would just like to get into shortwave radio, um, because it's a dying medium, but it's like you could still enjoy whatever's left while there's still some life left in it, uh, and you just want any info, I have these things that I copy and paste that have all the info you, you want about different radios to recommend, and just little facts about the medium, and like a little guide and stuff. And if you want any of that, I'll be happy to help. Just let me know. Uh, send me an email asking, and... Uh, Again, I'll be happy to help. Uh, just shoot me an email, v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. John in Illinois checks in. On the subject of YouTube, I noticed that your most popular video is the I React to Mean Comments video. In the interest of keeping the lights on, as you often say, would your strategy be to allow that one unique video to continue performing or perhaps to create or perhaps to create a part two updated version since the topic has evidently generated a lot of interest? Hope you are well. Thank you for reading this. John in Illinois. Thank you, John, for your question there. You know, when it comes down to YouTube, uh, it's really just down to the algorithm, and uh, a lot of it really just comes down to pure luck. That's one of the most important things to realize when it comes down to the platform and all of that. There are certain things, of course, that you can do uh, that can help in certain ways, but in many instances, it really is just the luck of the draw. And, you know, you could do everything a certain way, uh, and you'll certainly have people out there that will make all sorts of very formulaic suggestions, and they'll act anyway as though if you just do things this way, uh, success will be all but guaranteed. When I must emphasize, there's certain things, again, that could play a role, but a lot of it uh, comes solely down to the luck of the draw. 
In the question regarding the mean comments video, a lot of that had a lot to do with pure luck. And a lot of it is just what the algorithm chooses to promote for one reason or the other. I emphasize the, the sort of luck and promotions and all of that because in addition to that react to me in comments video, I did 12 other videos just like that. And they've all been well received, uh, but obviously none of them are as well known, perhaps, as the mean comments video. So again, it really just comes down, like I mentioned, to the sort of luck of the draw, and uh, what really happens to get favored in the algorithm. But there are other videos that I did in regards to the mean comments video, 12 of them, as a matter of fact. Thank you again for your question. Justin writes in, I was wondering if you had any special plans for the 10-year anniversary of your show. I've enjoyed it and appreciate the work you put in. Thank you, Justin. Uh, I don't have any plans. As a matter of fact, uh, it oftentimes escapes my mind uh, that the show is even coming on 10 years. It's, uh, it's really crazy to, to think about. No, I don't, I don't have any plans. I'm sure I'll, you know, when the time comes, uh, I'm sure I'll talk about it a bit, you know, storytelling a little bit as to how I started doing that and, and all of that. That might be what I'll, I'll do. I'll just talk about the show's origins a little bit, perhaps, but uh, nothing really beyond that. Thank you again for your question. An anonymous listener writes, If you had to choose only one decade of music for the rest of your life, which would you choose? I think mine would be the 60s, with 70s in second place. Talk about a difficult question. That one is, uh, that one's a tough one. Gosh, I don't know. It would be very, very difficult to give an answer there. It would either be 80s or 90s, easily. It would be one of those two. I just don't know which one would be first, because both of those decades, I have to tell you, have so much good music. So if I could name two, for the sake of it being a little bit of an easier response, it would definitely be 80s or 90s, um, without question. A few years ago, I would have said 90s, easily. I still like my 90s music, it's awesome, but uh, over the last number of years, I've really begun to appreciate just the sheer amount of absolutely incredible music from the 80s as well. That would be difficult. Good question, thank you. Anonymous listener in the UK. I know you have previously said that you would eat one meal a day. You have spoken about this dietary arrangement quite a while ago, and have noticed a growing trend recently of intermittent fasting, and people popularizing the acronym OMAD, I guess OMAD, meaning one meal a day. I was wondering if you still ate this way, and if you ever decide to have breakfast as your one meal rather than dinner. I've recently begun eating this way myself, and appreciate the ease of it. Again, thank you for your broadcasts, and I wish you well. Thank you, dear anonymous listener. 
in the UK for writing in. I still do. That still is my preferred way of eating. I will preface, of course, I am not a doctor, nor am I a dietitian, nor am I giving any advice. Merely, I am speaking about what particularly works best for me, in my case. Uh, but as far as how I eat, uh, yes, I do eat one meal per day. Uh, it is just, really, it's the only thing I'm comfortable doing. And uh, at this point in time, and I know it might sound strange, but for those of you perhaps who maybe just eat one meal as well, I know you all would understand this, uh, it becomes inconceivable to even think about eating more than one meal a day. Now, when I mention that, though, that's not to say, oh, you're starving yourself, I'm not. When I eat my meal per day, I eat an amount of food which I am comfortable eating. I eat an amount that leaves me feeling full and fulfilled thereafter, and throughout the remainder of the day, I will have light snacks, I will stay well hydrated with water, and uh, various other, I would say, healthy drinks with various nutrients therein. And again, I will snack. But that one meal is enough for me. That is my sustenance. It sustains me for the day. And in, you know, for me, this is just how it is. I just don't think the room is there to eat more than one meal per day. I just don't think I have that, that capacity in me. Uh, but, you know, everyone is different, and some people, of course, have more ravenous an appetite and uh, have more uh, more room, for lack of a better word, to be able to eat more than others do. So it's it's understandable that there are plenty of folks out there who will eat three uh, significant meals per day, and, uh, you know, that's how they feel fulfilled by the end of the day. Uh, in my case, you know, my capacity is what it is. I'll eat that one meal and uh, have light snacking, and then that's it. That's that's just what works for me. And I'm not hungry after that point. I feel totally fine, and I repeat, uh, repeat the next day. I suppose my sleep schedule changes, mind you. So the definition of breakfast, lunch, and dinner would would be quite different in my case. But, you know, when I think about it, the one meal that I do eat per day essentially would be classifiable for my circadian rhythm, a breakfast. I'll give an example, though, how this is sort of skewed by perception, i.e. the time of day as it corresponds to one with a regular circadian rhythm versus how it is for me. Today, for instance, I woke up at the time of 4 p.m. Eastern, late afternoon. That is when I woke up. So for someone on a normal sleep schedule, 4 p.m. for me might feel like how someone on a normal schedule might feel at 7 a.m., right? The early evening is essentially my morning. That's when I'm waking up. It's when I'm just beginning my day, just going about my business, starting things off. And for the most part, the main meal of the day is usually had by me uh, within, well, let's say, 
an hour or two, sometimes three, of my waking up, and generally no later than that. Granted, I don't eat breakfast food for what may be my breakfast. For instance, in this case, I woke up at 4 p.m. At the time of around 6 p.m. Eastern, I got some ribs and uh, from a local barbecue place. I got some ribs and some sauce. I got some sides therewith, and it made for a most enjoyable meal. That was my one meal per day, and I suppose for me... I guess that was my breakfast, very unconventional breakfast, granted, but that was my sustenance, and uh, that's that's how it is. So yes, I do the one meal per day. Again, I could only speak for myself, but it is what works perfectly for me, and I really cannot see myself doing uh, anything but that at this point in time. I just don't think I need to. Uh, I think it sustains me very sufficiently. I'm happy with it. I feel my body is happy with it. And uh, that's what works in my case. Thank you for your question. This listener goes by the name Vaughn, located in central Wisconsin. I saw a video today on YouTube that showed a Bigfoot-like creature walking along a hillside and then crouching down in some brush. What is your opinion on this video? Do you think it is real? I recently saw it on the Penguins Zero channel on a video labeled, Is This Actually Bigfoot? So thank you for your question. I came across that video a little while back, and I found it interesting, but I don't believe it genuine. And understand, I am one that is partial to Bigfoot. Uh, You know, I've given it some considerable thought, and it just really would not surprise me in the least if these are real living flesh-and-blood creatures. But nonetheless, people could say what they want about it. I really don't care, you know. Do whatever you want. Uh, This video came to be from... I think it was Durango, Colorado. That's my understanding. Let's look. Yeah, it was Durango. Durango, Colorado. That's a a town located in southwestern Colorado. It's not quite on the New Mexico border, but it's fairly close to it. Not the... uh, Greatest population area in the world. Let's see how many folks actually live over there. Nineteen thousand. It's on the outskirts of it. Someone was on a train, looked out the window, filmed what they believed was a Sasquatch creature walking along the hillside And then it appears to crouch down, essentially blending with the environment, and uh, appears to observe the train going by. Many folks, as casual observers, took this video as perhaps some of the greatest evidence to exist of a a Sasquatch. Uh, When I see the video, I just don't believe that that that's what we're seeing here. 
I don't buy it. Uh, to me, number one, the hair just looks too shaggy, but I should say uniformly so, too uniformly shaggy. Uh, generally speaking, a lot of the times when people actually see one of these creatures, uh, the hair can be uniform, but it's not necessarily inches and inches long just hanging off everywhere, again, in such a uniform manner. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is behaviorally speaking, you know, the gait, nothing about that is necessarily convincing, but the crouching down and just observing it, this is not something that usually ever gets reported in eyewitness uh, sightings. And uh, most damningly, though, I will say, is that it was located again in an area near Durango, it's called Silverton, and coincidentally, there is a tour group located in that precise area where, ever so coincidentally, it's Sasquatch-themed, and the owner thereof will uh, occasionally dress up as a Sasquatch in a costume that very so coincidentally practically mirrors, again, at least as far as the shade is concerned, uh, the appearance of what was captured on video. And this isn't some old thing. This There were pictures of the guy doing this probably a month ago. Late 2023, we're talking about. So, that suggests to me that that's exactly who we're seeing here, uh, which would also explain the behavior that seems to me much more like how someone just wearing a suit uh, would behave as opposed to uh, anything that some eyewitnesses will actually see. Uh, so that points to me, then, that uh, we're seeing, probably in that video, the guy who was doing that tour group uh, dressed up, and again, that's what we have there. I will say, after all of this, that guy with the, uh, the tour group better have a bulletproof vest on underneath that suit, that's all that I could say, but, you know, and mind you, this is coming from someone who is more, more partial um, to Sasquatch than probably most folks are. But I do not believe that video uh, is anything more uh, than the owner of that tour group uh, out and about in the field. Not that this is necessarily coordinated between the person filming this or not. Not necessarily at all. But I nonetheless believe that to be the case. Thank you for your question. I have a quick question coming in from Chris in North Carolina. <laughs> And uh, he signed his uh, email as Champion of Champions, which I won't dispute. <laughs> but uh, you said, I was wondering if you ever eat frozen pizza, and if so, what kind? I'm partial to wild mics. And also, what toppings do you like on a hot dog? Respectfully yours, Chris. Champion of champions. So thank you. 
I'm just going to call you the champion just because I want to. I don't get to be able to do that in a serious manner all too often, so why the heck not? So, it's a good question. I, I am still a consumer of frozen pizza. I will say, back in 2014, I would have considered myself frozen pizza aficionado. These days, I don't eat frozen pizza as much, but yes, Frozen pizza is something that I've extensive experience with. Sure, it's not as good as, right, fresh pizza from a a local pizzeria or anything like that, but still, I truly believe frozen pizza has a time and place, and uh, it certainly really hits the spot sometimes. Right now, I would say my favorite frozen pizza is Red Baron. I personally like the Red Baron deep dish, the the mini pizzas. Those things are outstanding. They make for a very good snack or a very good meal in my case. I find them flavorful. I find them consistently good. They're easy to prepare and they're very enjoyable. I usually get them with pepperoni, and again, I like them very much. But otherwise, aside from the Red Baron pizzas, I also enjoy the Freschetta Rising Crust pizzas. Those are quite good as well, with pepperoni, of course. Have to go with the pepperoni. But Freschetta Rising Crust is another good frozen pizza. Now it's a bit bigger, of course, than the Red Baron mini pizzas, but it is still quite good, and you know, I just eat what I can. Years ago, in 2014, I used to like DiGiorno. I really liked DiGiorno quite a bit, actually. I feel I was in a very distinct minority here, but in 2014, they changed the recipe for their pizza sauce. And I loved the new sauce that they put on, the DiGiorno pizzas. I was such a fan of it. It was excellent. It had this little sweet note to it. It was more, uh, it was more, it was less runny is what I'm trying to say. It was more structured, perhaps. And it was just a very, very pleasant and enjoyable sauce. And I liked it so much more than their previous sauce. But, at least as DiGiorno alleged, no one liked their new sauce, so they switched back in late 2014 to their old sauce, which to me was runny, and it had almost this sort of sour or perhaps more bitter note to it, and uh, was really... I did not enjoy the sauce they switched it back to. So for a few months... I really enjoyed DiGiorno, uh, but then they switched the sauce, and uh, I just haven't been a fan of them ever since. Frozen pizza, though. I am a fan. I am indeed a fan. Thank you for your question. And that's all that I have time for in tonight's program. If you sent in an email, and I wasn't able to get to it in this program, fear not. I still have some more noted down 
that I want to get to in the near future. I might even do another quick show before New Year because I want to make that formal announcement about the predictions show. Uh, so I might kind of do an announcement show and then get to the rest of the feedback in that one. So no worries there. I have a lot of emails still noted down. I haven't lost track of them. And I just stay tuned for that. Thank you all so much for listening in. Until next time, be safe, be healthy, and I wish you all the very best. Take care, this is VOIW.